to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 21. We have brought an end to our series in the Sermon on the Mount, but we are going to stay with the Gospel of Matthew for the next couple of weeks as we focus on and celebrate the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry and ultimately on the next Lord's Day, the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Today is Palm Sunday, the day on the Christian calendar when we celebrate the first day of the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, the day when Jesus comes striding into the city of Jerusalem, coming there not to shake his fist in the face of tyranny, but to overcome the world through his death and resurrection. He comes gentle and lowly. He comes in meekness, peacefully, in order to make peace between God and man who had rebelled against him. This is not the kind of passage, I think, that stands to astonish us with some new truth or something that we've until now not discovered. It's a fairly straightforward telling of Jesus' entrance into the city. But when you look closer at the life of our Lord, his posture toward the city that would consume him just days later. It is a passage that stands to bear a great deal of power in our life as we seek to emulate the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you found your way to Matthew 21, we're going to read together verses 1 through 11. If you found your way there in your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for its reading. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse Number one, the Bible says here, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you, that once you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord needs them and immediately he will send them. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their robes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their robes on the roads. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, Who is this? And the crowds kept saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. This is, again, the telling of the last day, of the uh, uh, first day, rather, of the last week in Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus comes here into the city of Jerusalem, face set like a flint, such that for the joy set before him, he would endure the cross that lie ahead. This is a passage, again, that I think we might be somewhat familiar with, at least on a superficial level. I trust that it holds encouragement and help for us in understanding the character of our Savior Jesus this morning. Look to verse 1. 
The Bible says when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent forward his disciples or helped to understand something of the location of Jesus here in our passage. He is here in the city of Bethphage or more appropriately the village of Bethphage. There's nothing known of Bethphage archaeologically, but we do know, biblically speaking, that Bethphage was a sister village to the tiny village of Bethany. We know Bethany because it was the hometown or home village to a man named Lazarus, who in John chapter 11 was four days after his death called forth grave clothes and all from his death that the words of our Savior Lazarus arise and come forth, and indeed he did. There was a great friendship even prior to Lazarus being raised from the dead on the part of he and our Lord Jesus. Not only did Lazarus enjoy a friendship with Jesus, John 11 describes him as one whom Jesus loved, but also his sisters Mary and Martha were very close friends of Jesus, known best for their service and worship of Jesus during his stay there. It seems that Bethany or Bethphage, probably most specifically the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha became the outpost of operation for Jesus when doing ministry in the vicinity of Jerusalem. In any event, Bethany and Bethphage were roughly two miles from the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is now approaching the city that he knows to hold forth for him death by execution and execution by the cross. Even the disciples, who seemed to be very dense at times in their ministry, were aware of the difficulties that awaited Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. They questioned the wisdom of Jesus moving forward in this Jerusalem ministry effort. Nevertheless, Jesus would press on. Now just two miles from his final destination, he charges two disciples to go forth, specifically telling them in verse 2, go into the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord needs them, and immediately he will send them. Verses 6 through 8 affirm that indeed they go into that village They find not only the donkey, but also its colt, both tied there. When they begin untying, the owner inquires about their taking those animals, and uh, uh, they quickly inform him that the Lord has need of them, and he allows them to go just the way that Jesus predicted they would. Now, there's all kinds of conversation within New Testament scholarship circles about the nature of Jesus's prediction here. Is this said on the basis of some prearranged deal with someone in another village? Does Jesus just know an owner there? Has he done ministry in that area and perhaps informed the owner of this livestock that there would come a point when he needed this donkey and its colt in order that he might travel around? I don't think there's any question about the miraculous nature of what unfolds here in the passage. That, that Jesus has ordained that these animals be prepared for him. For those of you who have any awareness or understanding or any exposure to livestock at all, you'll note that there's a little added miracle here that most who perhaps grow up in the city are not aware of. When they go get the donkey and its colt, Jesus rides the colt that has never been ridden before into the city of Jerusalem. Now, for you city folks, that won't mean a whole lot. But if you've ever been around livestock, specifically donkeys, just go try to get on one that's never been ridden before and take a trip somewhere close. It won't take you long to see the miraculous nature of what's unfolding. 
Now, in my estimation, what, what Matthew is doing here and introducing us to and walking us through this episode, it's, it's one final reminder here at the beginning of the Passion Week that we're not just talking about a prophet who was martyred. There were many who suffered that fate. We're talking here about the only begotten Son of God who, who has the omniscience and the wisdom to know not only that a donkey and a colt is tied in the village ahead, but the power to subdue the most stubborn of animals that he would ride in peacefully. This is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. This is the only begotten of God. This is Jesus the divine that rides into the holy city of Jerusalem. Matthew reminds us here at this moment in time in Matthew's chronology that Jesus is the divine Son of God, the only begotten, the only one suitable to make the sacrifice necessary on the other end of this Passion Week, the only one perfect in his righteousness that might be the appropriate atoning sacrifice for my sins and your sins and the sins of the world. This is Jesus. This is the only begotten of God somewhat subtle miracle that reminds us of a remarkable truth. In verse 4, the Bible says this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is what I believe to be a second of Matthew's prompts or reminders here at the outset of this Passion Week. Not only that Jesus is the divine Son of God, the only begotten of God who came to take our sins away, but that Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise. Matthew, again and again, you can't read the Gospel of Matthew without these prompts, without these signposts, without these reminders that Jesus is the King we have all been waiting on. Matthew reminding us here that Jesus is the fulfillment of that somewhat vague promise, that somewhat obscure promise of Zechariah 9.9, tell daughter Zion, your King is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus fulfills this prophecy in in absolute perfection. But in the process of noting for us that Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, we are reminded that Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. He is the son and the seed of Genesis 3.15 that crushes the head of the serpent and guarantees our great victory. He is the new and better Moses, not just faithful in the house, but the builder of the house who brings us out of our sin and slavery, who affords us a land that flows with milk and honey. He is the new and better Joshua who, although bringing some degree of rest in leading the children of Israel over the Jordan River, Christ has promised to bring us over in perfection into a land indeed that flows with milk and honey, free from sin and sinners and sadness and sorrow. Christ has provided perfect rest for all his people. He is a brazen serpent lifted up in the wilderness. To him we look and we find healing for our soul, the promise of everlasting life and all that we have been longing for. 
He's the fulfillment of every promise that Daniel ever foretold. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the good and faithful king of Deuteronomy 18. He is the Messiah who suffers and through the valley of great difficulty achieves victory in Psalm 23. And he is the good shepherd who attends to the needs of his people in Psalm 23. Jesus is the king we have all been waiting for. Even for those of you who may come this morning without an understanding of what the Old Testament promises with regards to a king or a Messiah, there is an innate longing in our heart for a good and faithful Lord over our life, someone who provides for our needs. Now, your needs may have been distorted over the course of time, and the sin in you may have caused you or lured you to some counterfeit, but regardless of who you are or where you come from or even what you know in your background or experience, what you are fundamentally looking for is to be found in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can scratch that itch. Only Jesus can fill that void. Only Jesus can meet our most fundamental of needs. Matthew helps us to be reminded of that, noting Zechariah 9.9, the promise of a king that comes riding in, not with pomp and circumstance, but with humility and mercy. In verse 6, the Bible says, the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their robes on them, and he sat on them. Large crowds spread their robes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, what is unfolding in verses 1 through 11 is sort of a makeshift ripoff of a kingly coronation ceremony. Now, we don't know coronations in this country because in 1776 we decided we weren't interested in such things. But from time to time, you'll see this in the news. We'll see hints of this, or at least we have a, a, a degree of exposure to kings and queens and monarchs and coronations and sort of how that unfolds. But, but think of what this must have looked like. You have Jesus riding not a war steed or a white stallion, not even a full-grown donkey, but the colt of a donkey. Laid before him are the ragged robes of his disciples and for those who could not bear to cast down their robes or perhaps did not possess robes to cast down, they cut palm branches to lay along the road where Jesus would ride this colt of a donkey. This is a king making his procession into the city of Jerusalem, being led by a mob of peasants. This is, this is not the picture of one who posed a great deal of threat, at least not military threat, to the Roman authorities that ruled the city of Jerusalem at this time. Jesus is coming in, and they are singing, Hosanna to God in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This, this is really small in comparison to the kind of coronation or the kind of celebration that might awaited some Roman dignitary 
or God forbid, the Roman emperor making an entrance into a city like the city of Jerusalem. This is not a coronation fitting of our king, but it is the coronation that he receives nonetheless. Now, I want you to note, because I think that this is of practical importance for us, and and what I mean by that is when it comes to making applications of these verses, how we are to live in light of what we have discovered here, I think that this is critically important. Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem, everything about his entrance into the city of Jerusalem is indicative of his mission to bring peace between God and man. In other words, Jesus comes peacefully into the city to make peace. He does not come with a legion of centurions, well-armed. He does not come with sword and shield in hand. He comes with a peasant mob who are no threat to anyone, most of whom can't afford the robes they might have otherwise cast down before the way of this colt of a donkey. Jesus doesn't come into the city of Jerusalem shaking his fist in the face of tyrants. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem meek and lowly, not on a stallion or a war steed. Jesus comes there, yes, to overcome the world but to do it in a way that would confound those who even received him in this passage. Jesus comes modeling the way we are to overcome the world and the way the kingdom advances even in the 21st century. We read oftentimes, and and I find that there's a certain magnetism about those passages that speak of the victory that the Messiah will enjoy that uses strong military language or the symbols and the imagery of battle and the victory that Jesus will enjoy. And make no mistake, there is coming a day when the lamb returns not as a lamb but as the lion. There is coming a day when Jesus wields the sword of judgment against the unrighteous of this world, when he gathers to himself all of his people to cleanse and to claim forevermore and to bring judgment forever and finally against this world and the sin it bears. But the kingdom that Jesus comes to inaugurate is not a kingdom, it's, it's not a kingdom that is bathed in the blood of judgment, but in the grace of the Lamb. Jesus comes peacefully into the city of Jerusalem to bring peace and to make peace. And as his disciples, as his followers, this is the image that we are to bear. Jesus comes to overcome the world, yes, but he does so in a way that couldn't have been imagined, that apart from the insight we have in his word and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we might never imagine. Jesus has come to overcome the world, but he doesn't do it with sword and shield. Rather, he does it by his death. Jesus lays down his life and in doing so secures victory for us, inaugurates the kingdom of God on earth. It's through Jesus' death and resurrection that the kingdom itself is begun among us. It's through Jesus' death and resurrection that we have access to the kingdom itself. It's his death and resurrection. And then Jesus would say to his followers, listen, Jesus would say to his followers, if you want to be a part of advancing my kingdom, 
If, if, if you want to bear a kingdom heart, if you want to be kingdom people, here's what you must do. You must take up that instrument of death, the cross, and you must follow me daily. Follow me where? Follow me to the cross. Follow me unto death. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus calling upon us to sort of create or generate these martyrdom experiences, but he is calling upon us to die daily to ourselves. Do you know, brothers and sisters, how the kingdom is advanced? The kingdom is advanced by men and women and boys and girls who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus, who are willing to die to themselves, to forego the, the pleasures of this life in order that Christ might be known locally and among the nations. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. This is the plea of our Savior, Jesus. And even in that weird book of Revelation that so many people so misunderstand, all of the, the imagery and the symbolism of war and of battle. Do you know what the primary weapon of our warfare is in those texts? It is the confess, confession of our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how you win the battle. You march to your death if need be, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Note what Jesus does in our passage. Jesus is marching into the teeth of the city that will consume him. And the call of Christ on our life is to march into the sometimes growling teeth of this world, defiant at one point that Jesus is alive and he is the Lord of our lives. And when we gladly do so, even when those teeth consume us, the kingdom of Christ is advanced in powerful, powerful ways. Jesus came bearing peace and as the people of God, we must be peace-bearing people as well. I, I don't know where we ever got this idea that being a faithful Christian is about shaking our fist and insisting that our rights and privileges be observed always and everywhere. I don't get it. I will never understand it because it's certainly not found in the New Testament. What Jesus does here is to lay aside his rights and privileges and I'm telling you, listen, even in subtle ways, we suggest that the kingdom goes forth by force. You put a bunch of Baptists in the mob that day, they'd establish a voting block. We'll vote these jokers out of here. We'll handle all this. We'll elect us some Baptists to serve on the Sanhedrin. That's how we'll get this worked out. Or there'll be so many of us, we'll just boycott the marketplace, and they won't be able to trade unless they agree with us. And I realize there are times for those kinds of tactics, and we're in a strange situation in a government made up by the people and for the people. I don't want to marginalize or minimize the significance of any of those things. But I'm telling you, folks, the primary weapon of our warfare is our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the call and the promise of Scripture is that this is the mechanism by which the kingdom goes forward. Christ is pleased to bless it. Marching into the growling, snarling teeth of this world, we take up our cross and we follow him daily. Jesus, Jesus came peacefully, bringing peace to the city, even in the face of great resistance. Now, What's astonishing about all of this is that even as Jesus comes bearing all the signs and symbols of peace, 
He was a deeply threatening figure to the world around him. Now, on the contrary, we've chosen to seek at times the advancement of the kingdom by sheer force and the shaking of our fist. And I got to tell you, we ain't scared of nobody. When you do it Jesus' way, Jesus' way, there is a profound power that comes with that. Jesus enters the city as a figure that represented great threat to the people. And so this one who came peacefully, this one who came riding the coat of, I can, I, I, in my imagination, Jesus' sandals are almost dragging the ground. And, and his coronation crowd is a ragtag bunch of the absolute least of these. And yet he has stricken fear in the hearts of what may have been the world's mightiest empire in the Roman Empire. This is what King Jesus does. And I, and I want to tell you, when you take the lowly place, when you go the kingdom way and choose last place over first place, the way of the servant over the way of, of the master, when you're willing to be in the back instead of out front, when you're willing to embrace the towel and the basin over the crown and the throne, this world is fearful of that kind of posture. This world is afraid of that because this world knows nothing of that. That's the way Jesus comes. And they're so threatened by his posture, by this person, by this lowly prophet, from their perspective anyway, that within days he's nailed to a tree and crucified for having identified himself as the only begotten son of God. Now, I want you to look down to verse 9. Here the Bible says, the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, sort of my way of regarding those folks who sang this song, and it is a song, it's a reference to Psalm 118, specifically Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, and they're right, right? Hosanna, which means save now, is, is an appropriate song for Jesus. In fact, Psalm 118 is not only a song of praise that was often sung and frequently cited in the New Testament, it's also a messianic psalm. In other words, it's a psalm that looks forward to the coming of a king, the king we now know to be Jesus. My way of looking at the crowd and their singing of this song was, well, they're right, but they're fickle. Because the same folks that make up the crowd in Matthew 21 make up the crowd who stands outside the palace of Pilate and cry, crucify him, crucify him. But I think, I think my assessment of the mob has been adjusted over the past couple of weeks in looking at this passage. They're as wrong in this passage as they are later when they cry, crucify him, crucify him. Not wrong for what they say. Jesus is the son of David. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wrong in the sense that what they expected of Jesus was altogether different from what Jesus intended to provide. It's only later when Jesus doesn't live up to their expectations that the cries of Hosanna turn to cries of crucify him, crucify him. 
Now, if I could put this in plain language, language many of us perhaps would understand, what they're looking for, it seems, in Jesus is a first century prosperity gospel. Jesus, do what we want you to do. Meet all of our earthly needs. Establish the boundaries of Israel. Liberate us from Roman oppression. Run out these foreign nations who have invaded our land. Make us a free people. Make the economy strong. Make the military vast. Make our homes larger and our accounts bigger. Be that kind of Messiah for us. And I just got to tell you, Jesus is not a populist savior. He is who he is, the same yesterday, today, and forever, to be received on his terms or not received at all. Now, they sing Hosanna to the son of David because it is a messianic psalm, one that bears the imagery of warfare and battles and speaks of the freedom and independence that this Messiah brings. But Jesus intends to bring it in fundamentally different ways. In fact, it's a psalm that they had sung around 300 years before the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. When a Jewish man named Judas Maccabeus, or the Hammer, as he was known in Jewish circles, came and brought freedom and independence to the nation. Now, he was the kind of Messiah they were looking for. The problem is he was a deeply sinful man, and his whole family were deeply sinful men, and the freedom that he brought was short-lived. They now sing the same song in the hopes that Jesus will provide for them what Judas had 300 years prior. And there are many, there are many in the world today who are seeking after a Jesus who will scratch their itch, who will meet their need, who will be their celestial vending machine, providing for them what they want when they want it without meddling with their life in any way deeper than what they intend. And Jesus will have no part of that kind of relationship. Jesus comes to be Lord of all, exerting his will on our life. And you got to know, listen, you got to know that we just don't have a good perspective with regards to what is good for us or best for us. And you got to know, right, that, that your wants at times, that your wishes are deeply impacted by such sinful tendencies, you could never have the right kind of perspective with regards to what you do need. Sometimes I hear the things that my children want, and I think this must be the way the Lord looks at me when I pray for foolish things. Can, can we have candy for dinner? It sounds wonderful, right? But it's not good for us. Jesus, Jesus will not come and satisfy our stupid desires. Rather, he comes to turn our heart to align us with his will. Jesus comes to be the king. He is not the king that so many have wanted in the worst of ways. Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest. They said the right things, but they could not have been more wrong in their assessment of who Jesus was. Now, we've learned this lesson just last week, right? We just finished the Sermon on the Mount for those who weren't here. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that on the day of judgment, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, I never knew you. And they might say, if we're reading from the perspective of Matthew chapter 21, but Jesus, we sang the right verse from the right hymn in the right Baptist hymnal. 
They're right. They are right. Brothers and sisters, I would have you to note that across the Bible, Satan is always orthodox in his evaluation of what God is up to in the world. That our relationship with God is not about our orthodoxy. It's not about being right, but being in union, being in fellowship, being in relationship with the God of heaven. They said the right thing. They sang the right verse from the right hymn, from the right hymnal, but their heart was far from God, and Jesus will respond, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. They seem to have been glad to receive Jesus so long as he would be the kind of Messiah they wanted, but refusing to receive him as he truly is. And at the point at which Jesus made it clear he would not conform to their sinful expectations, the Hosanna cry turned to crucify, crucify. And the unfortunate reality is that for many so-called believers today, the point at which it becomes clear that Jesus will not conform to meet your sinful expectations, your cries of Hosanna are often shaped to cries of crucify him, crucify him. I was in conversation, a few conversations this week tended to go in the direction of talking about revival and renewal and what that looks like. And I've, I've come to this conclusion, that the reason that we don't see broad sweeping revival in general in the West, and the reason that we might not see revival in our individual lives, awakening in our individual lives, a nearness to Christ that goes beyond where we are at the moment, is because most folks really want revival without repentance of sin. Revival without conforming to the will and image of Jesus Christ. God, Help me to have this experience wherein I feel closer to God without any real tangible change having taken place in my life. Brothers and sisters, it's true within the spiritual realm as it is in the practical realm. If you keep doing the same things in your life, it will keep yielding the same fruit or the same outcomes. There will likely not be a moment in time when a wand is waved and you're granted this experience, this feeling of nearness to Jesus apart from weeping and gnashing teeth over the presence of sin in your life and a willful walking away from those things. And the rare chance that that experience is had, it's likely little more than an experience in the first place. Jesus doesn't come to conform to our sinful expectations, but to firmly establish himself as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And that includes me, brothers and sisters, and that includes you. In other words, Jesus is in charge. I, 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 think, that, I, I think when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to defending the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, and when it comes to our self-evaluation in light of this passage, it really ultimately all boils down to this. Jesus lived without sin. He died on the cross in our place and rose again the third day. And the weight there, in my estimation, is on the fact that Jesus rose again the third day. Jesus rose again the third day. 
we have a well-attested historical event in the resurrection of Jesus. I would submit to you this morning, as I will submit yet again next Sunday morning, that what is before you, what must be before you, the question that must be asked and answered uh, of yourself from your standpoint, do you believe that Jesus rose from the grave? Because if Jesus has risen from the grave, it changes everything about our life. If Jesus has not, on the contrary, risen from the grave, then let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We of all, we of all men are the most pitiable. But brothers and sisters, if Jesus is alive, and I believe with all of my heart and soul and strength and mind, we must hasten to emulate his example to live as he has called us to live, to run to him for what can be found in him and him alone. Salvation, hope, everlasting life, abundant life, grace and mercy and forgiveness, the promise of heaven in the there and then, and to some extent even in the here and now. You must come to Christ. In light of his resurrection, we're seven days from, from that moment in time in the church calendar when we, we focus our attention on that event. That is, that's it. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we narrow our celebration to that one Sunday. The reason the church meets on the first day of the week is because it's the day that Christ rose. Do you understand how foundational the resurrection is to who we are as a people? From the birth of the church, there was understanding that without the resurrection, we are nothing. Without the resurrection, we are nothing. The most important event in human history, the most important event in my life, the most important event in your life is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're helped to begin to understand something of the events that lead up to his death and ultimately his resurrection here in Matthew chapter 21. And I would challenge you to assess the teaching of the Bible with regards to his death and resurrection to test them vigorously. I think that by the work of God's Holy Spirit, what you'll find is precisely what I have found. The good news that Jesus is alive. And because of that, everything has changed. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and the chance to focus our attention on these few verses. God, I, I know that th there is some weight about what we're taught in this passage the peacefulness with which Jesus comes and, and the manner of, of our life in light of what we see in Jesus. These are heavy subjects with broad applications, God. And so I pray that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see even beyond those examples offered here this morning, how we can be like Jesus in every area of our life. I pray that you would help us in the closing moments of our service, Lord, to meditate on what it means to say that Jesus is the divine Son of God with the omniscience to know of the placement of livestock and the very hairs of our head, with the power to ensure that the plan unfolds just as it was put together in the foundations of the world. God, I, I pray that you would... Help us, Lord, to understand and, and to turn in our thoughts the significance of Jesus fulfilling every Old Testament prophecy and every God-given yearning in our hearts. God, help us to be the kind of people that would honor you, Lord, 
and modeling our life after that of the Savior. Savior, make us over in the likeness and image of your only begotten Son. God, I have have felt such a want in reading and preparing for this message and even for next Sunday's message to, to draw near, to say beyond the ability that I have to say it. Lord, that the resurrection should radically change our life. It, it shapes everything that we do. Lord, if I had it in, in my power, if given the appropriate setting, Lord, I'd, I'd love nothing more than to pull close every individual here and to say to them forcefully, God, that Jesus has died in our place and risen again and to question them with regards to how much they understand the power of, of this message. God, I pray that you would do just that. Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, that you would shake us and awaken us, Lord, that we might see the significance of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. God, I I pray that we would leave today different than we arrived because of the resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that we have gathered together this morning to serve a living Savior who is at work in the world today. Thank you for the angelic announcement He is not here. He is risen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.